0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to Odyssey Bible. My name is Josh and uh, as Pastor Kirk, he's one of the pastors here. So am I along with Pastor Dan and excited to have you here today. Hey, it's the first, according to the the weather forecast, looks like the first real week of summer. Are you dreading it or are you excited for it? A little bit of both. Looks like it's finally going to be hot and humid. You're excited now, but I'm curious next Sunday where you where you stand on the issue It might be a little toasty. Uh, but it'll be, a, it'll be a good week. We had a good week in the office this week. I'm, I'm really thankful for Pastor Dan and for Pastor Kirk. Uh, spent a lot of time already looking forward to the next ministry year. And uh, we'll be announcing some of those things in the coming weeks. But we basically planned out the ministry year. We've, we've got a bunch of Doctrine Wednesdays lined up and just a lot of exciting things, some seminars, some exciting things coming in the next ministry year. And, uh, so summer is a good time for us to work on those things and build towards it, but, uh, we're excited for it. So I'm I'm excited about that today. Um, but Hey, are are you excited to get into God's word? Because who cares what I have to say? Right? I mean, it's, it's only, we only really care what God has to say. So grab your Bible, turn to James chapter four and, uh, we're in James chapter four. I'm going to go ahead and read the text for this morning. And then uh, I will pray, and then we'll unpack it together. And uh, this, is a, this is a text where James, it's kind of, if last week was the thematic peak of the whole, whole book of James, of this whole idea of wisdom from above versus wisdom from below, uh, this, this verse, this passage, excuse me, is kind of the exhortation peak of the, bio, of, the, of the letter, where he comes after us. And uh, you need to know there's, there's going to be, there, there's parts of today that are going to be a little bit PG-13. Simply because of what God's word has to say about the matter. Are you ready? So let's dive into the, to just our text. I'll pray and then uh, we're going to be um, diving in in a moment. Let me pray. Or let me, let me read, excuse me. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. James Wright, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Uh, Father, today as we uh, study your word uh, from James, uh, Lord, it's pierced my heart this week. And I, I, I believe it'll uh, likely do the same for all of us today because your word is a double-edged sword and it, it pierces straight through our motives. It pierces uh, straight through who we are, right, cutting right to the heart. Uh, but it's not a cut to wound us. It's a cut to heal us. And so this morning, Lord, would you turn our hearts back to you? Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, you would be pleased to use me and to work in and through me. I thank you, Lord, that you forgive me of my sin. There there are many. And uh, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Uh, He would um, long for us to to not submit to you, but to rebel against you. To not be humble, but to be proud. Uh, To not be submissive, but to be adulterous. Uh, So would you... uh, Bind him, his servants, their works and effects, and instead, Holy Spirit, change us today. Uh, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and your grace to us through him. We pray all this through him. Amen. James chapter 4. Do you know this section of James has more imperatives and more commands than any other section in the book? In fact, the last, three, last four verses today, verses 7 through 10, there's 10, and depending on how you count, maybe 11 commands. Uh, Some have called it the New Ten Commandments or the Ten Commandments of Humility. We'll get to that later this morning. Um, But James moves from being, in this passage, especially when we hit verse 4, he moves from being a wise man, a wise sage who's giving us wisdom uh, to a a prophet, not unlike a prophet in the Old Testament, who says, um, and he's not afraid to offend people. He says, you've sinned. You've messed it up. You adulterous people. You need to turn back to the Lord. And he gets in our face a little bit. And uh, and, and he uses a pretty graphic illustration there. And we're going to see from the Old Testament uh, where God uses that over and over in the Old Testament. We're going to go to one passage particular this morning to look at that. And... um but he starts off, verses 1 through 3. I told you last week, I really think this maybe fits better with chapter 3, but we're going to come back to it this morning. These first three verses, he starts off uh, by mentioning a conflict. See how he, see how he starts in verse 1? He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to church people, right? So he's saying, in your church, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What is it? Now, wouldn't that assume that there's probably some fights and quarrels? We never have that in our church. We've never had that, have we? You ought to be laughing because, yeah, we have. And uh, it's sad, really. I mean, by God's grace, there's been great unity over the last few years here, and that's been a rare thing. But there are days in our past where it was an ugly, ugly thing. And uh, by God's grace, we never want to go back. Amen? Amen. And this is a good warning to us to never go back. Because he says, what causes those fights and quarrels? And he seems to be assuming that in the people he's writing to, there are fights and quarrels happening. And so it begs the question, well, what are these quarrels? What are these fights? And he doesn't doesn't tell us exactly what it is. But I tell you what, if you look at the context of the whole letter of James, I think we get some good clues as to maybe what's happening. We don't know 100%, but we can take a pretty educated guess. If you look back at chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20, James says, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Evidently there was some anger about something going on. It seems that maybe the people James wrote to uh, may have even been at war with each other over positions in the church. Because you get to, to chapter 3, verse 1, look what he says. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It, it, it begs the question, it makes, it makes me wonder, you know, maybe um, there, were, there were many people in the church who, who wanted positions of leadership. They wanted to be teachers, they wanted to be leaders, but not with the right motives. When they studied the word, the result wasn't edification, but it was strife and arguments. And and they would take, and, and potentially, I don't know, I'm just I'm imagining based on what he wrote. Why would he write some of these things? Maybe they're taking God's word and instead of using it to encourage and edify one another, they're using it to beat each other down and they're being Bible thumpers. You know what a Bible thumper is, right? They come along and they just thump people with their Bible. <laughs> That's a, it's a bad idea. That's a bad, bad idea. Instead, we, we need to to use God's word to show grace and love. And yeah, correct people when we need to, but with a right attitude. Because as James says in chapter three in the tongue, you can say all the right things, but if you say them in the wrong way, watch out. You will cause all kinds of strife, all kinds of heartache, and you will do way more damage with this sword than you'll do any good surgery on someone's heart. Amen? That seems to be what James is saying. And, and, and there's this, he talks about not to have selfish ambition. So, so selfish ambition, I wonder if that ruled their meetings. When they had a congregational meeting, was it just, a, you know, uh, this pocket stood up and this is what we want. This pocket stood up this is what we want. This pocket, this is what we want. And all this selfish ambition. What's going, what are these quarrels? They're, something's not Right. They seem to be judging one another as well. Look at, look at chapter 2. Look at the end of chapter 2. Uh, James tells us, he, he talks about in, in chapter 2 not to be partial or show partiality or, or to judge one another. But look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. He's like, why don't you quit judging people and start showing mercy and love and grace? And all of these things build up now to chapter 4 where he's like, what causes these fights? What causes these quarrels among you? And then he answers this question. I wonder if, if some of the people, when they first heard this read, they thought, I can tell you that not what causes these quarrels, but who. I can tell you who. I got, uh, th- I got like five people come to mind right away. And, and James is like, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's not someone else. Look, it's you. You. Is it not This? That your passions are at war within you. Right out of the gate, James tells us that the problem, and he said this previously, the problem is from within. (laughs) It's not someone else. It's not something uh, strategically that's happening or, or some type of decision needing to be made. No, no, no. The problem with the quarrels is you. It's your heart, James says. Is it not your passions that are at war within you? Isn't that the source of all the quarrels? I wonder when when James writes this, if he has in mind Psalm 133, verse 1. Do you know what that says? Psalm 133, in the back of his head, wishing for this, praying for this, where, where the psalmist writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, when there's unity among God's people. But quarreling isn't new, is it? It's not new to us. It wasn't new to them. The disciples even quarreled, didn't they? But, but the problem is that quarrelsomeness it never ends well. The disciples, right, they quarreled over They're like arguing, well, who's going to be the greatest? Am I going to sit at your right hand or is he? Or is, Who's, who's going to be the greatest? And uh, Jesus was like, oh, why don't you get your eyes off you and get your eyes on me? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big cure for our quarrelsomeness. He goes on uh, continuing to, to, to lay into him. And by the way, you see this in, in other churches like the Paul writes to. You see it in the Corinthian church. They were competing with one another in public meetings. They were suing one another in court. The Galatian believers were, were biting and devouring each other, it says in chapter 5. Paul had to tell the Ephesians to cultivate spiritual unity in chapter 4. And even in, in Philippi, there were two women who couldn't get along. And they're called out by name in a letter from the Apostle Paul. They're, they're, listen, we're not immune from this. No one is. But, but how, what do we do with it? We need to turn our eyes off of that and onto Jesus and recognize the problems within. See, look what he says, verse 2. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. He's like, in, in, instead, of, instead of praying, because look what he says right after this. You don't have, though, because you don't ask. So instead of praying, instead of praying for wisdom, instead of praying and and seeking the Lord, instead you're just scheming and doing all these things on your own to get what you want, and it it doesn't end well. It ends in fights and quarrels and strife. Why aren't you praying? Can I share my heart with you for a second? And James kind of comes after us. uh, as a pastor, he just, he's a pastor and he comes at us with something that maybe stings a little bit. And so I, I, I feel like I just need to say this. You know, this spring we had multiple times where we had uh, times of prayer as a church and we met over here. And uh, yeah, it was, it was part of the 30 for 30 journey. But, but if anybody who was there, you'd find out we prayed maybe 5% of that time for that and 95% of the time for our church. And do you know how heartbreaking it was to see the small number of people who came to pray? You don't have because you don't ask. And it leads to worldliness. And it leads to quarrels. And I don't want to pray for that, so I'm not, well, no, 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 no. It's exactly why we should pray. Amen? I don't think I need to say anything else, but, but we need to pray, loved ones. There's going to be opportunities uh, for this again in the, maybe this summer, but likely early in the fall where we're going to do times of prayer. And let me just exhort you, as you, why aren't you there? Why not? So you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And he's telling us the problem is our passions within us. The problem is within us. It's within Josh. It's within you. See, you you ask and you don't receive because when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, not only sometimes do we fail, oftentimes I think do we fail to ask, but sometimes then when we do ask, we, we ask with the wrong motives. You know, there's some pretty fantastic promises in the Bible about prayer, aren't there? Where Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, what, what is it? It will be given to you. But we tend to forget that whole part in his name. And we just start asking for stuff in our name and what we want. And when we humble ourselves and pray and, and seek Jesus and his will, watch out. Watch out. You, you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Now, some people ask, okay, so is it, is it wrong for me then when I read this? And some people, I think, have wrongly taught it that it. Is, is it wrong to have pleasures and to have things that, that I love and that I enjoy? Um, is that wrong? No, I don't, I don't think that's wrong. James is coming after our hearts here, isn't he? He's talking about our heart. And that's going to become obvious here in a moment he's talking about her heart so the issue isn't um, are you are you saving up maybe for that vacation that's not a bad thing is it for that that's that's a good thing it's great but why why if it disregards God's rightful claim on all that you have and i'm just saving up to do this for me then i don't know what are those passions what are those pleasures really about if it's disregarding God, God's rightful claim on all of your time and all of your resources, acting as if they were your creation and your possession. See, see the, this wrong passion is when I, I use people and I use things, and I even use prayer for my own goals and desires, not seeking to serve others and to obey the Lord, but to advance me. Prayer is not about advancing me. It's about getting my heart right with the Lord. And we'll see that again as well. But just remember, as we get going, the problem isn't outside you. It's not the culture. It's not someone else. It's, point, where's the problem? Go ahead, come on, point. Where's the problem? Right here. It's me. Let's keep reading. Look at what James says in verse 4. You adulterous people. I'm going to read verses 4 through through 6. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Actually, I'm going to stop right there. James here, I said earlier, he switches over from being the wise man to being the prophet. And this is the thing that, this shows up all the time in the Old Testament, where where God calls his people adulteresses. And actually, depending on your translation, there's much harsher language than that that's used. And that's what he calls his people. That's what he calls us when we turn from him and sin. And, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But but look what else it says here in verse 4. He says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When you read that, do you have some questions pop into your mind? I have a few. Like, okay, so what does it mean, a f- friend with the world? Uh, and how do I balance that with, James has told me don't be a friend, but his older brother Jesus told me um, that, I, that I should, and he was a friend of sinners, that I, that I should love people. I should be involved in the world somehow. Is, is that, do you feel that tension there? Now, clearly they can't be talking about the same thing. James isn't saying don't be friends with people who don't know Jesus. We need to be friends with people who don't know Jesus so that they would know Jesus, Right? So, so here's something that I found helpful, maybe if those are some of the questions going through your mind, of, of how a, f- a few filters with which to uh, pass things through in culture of how do we engage culture. That makes sense? So, so we're supposed to, I mean, what's our mission statement? We are what? What's the first word? We are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. We're sent. Now, if we're sent, that means we can't stay where? Here. <laughs> that means we have to go out. We, we have to go out into the world. Uh, the person you work with next to at work, the person who lives next to, you're sent to love them. But you're going to find out as you get out into culture, there's certain things that you go, oh, I don't know, I should do that. What do I do? Well, here, I think this might be helpful. It's kind of this three-fold taxonomy of, of three filters of what do you do. I think first, there's some things in culture that, that we can simply receive. That we can simply receive. See, it's it's important for us to engage our culture, but to do it with wisdom. And so I think this gives us a filter to use some wisdom from above as we engage our culture and how we interact with them. There's some things in Scripture that are just simply part of God's common grace to us that we can receive. Well, what are some of those things? We can just receive them right as is. I think technology is a good example. There's no such thing as a Christian computer. Now Windows is close to not Christian, but because I'm a big Mac guy. But there's no such thing as a Christian computer, right? There's no such thing as a Christian phone. There's no such thing. Just in and of itself, there's there's no such thing. Uh, how about medicine? There's no such thing as Christian medicine. Now there's there's hospitals that, that are are founded, and and Christians, by the way, had a had maybe the biggest role of anybody in advancing medicine throughout history, if you look into it. But in terms of medicine, uh, I, I took a blood pressure pill this morning, and I didn't go, Lord, I hope this is a Christian one when I take it so it lowers my blood pressure. Right? There's no, no, no. no. It's a common gift of God's grace where he's enabled knowledge about how he designed us so that that I can benefit from it in my health. That, that's God's grace to me. Amen? Now, I know there's different perspectives on that, but I'm just, I'm telling you, there's there's no such thing as Christian medicine or or Christian technology or, um, do you want to know another one? There's not such thing as Christian of music or better said instruments. (laughs) I know. I've heard it. Those drums are evil. Those are Satan's drums. No, no, no. No, no, no. The Bible talks about playing drums to the glory of the Lord. And and music itself and even a melody, there's no such thing as a Christian melody. The, The thing that differentiates it is the lyrics, right? And where we engage our hearts and where it draws our heart toward. So again, there's certain things we can simply receive. You with me? So that's the first thing. If it's okay in and of itself, we can receive it. The second thing, though, there's also things that we absolutely must reject as followers of Jesus Christ. There's things I receive and there's things in, in, in culture that I have to reject. A, a, an easy example of this is pornography. I'm sorry, but there's no place for pornography in the life of a Christian, none. I reject that. One, it, it defaces the image of God in me. Two, it defaces the image of God in men and women other than me. It, it's, it's awful. I, I reject that outright. No, that's wickedness. I can't have any part of that. There's there's others we could list as well. There's some things really clearly we can reject. But guess where so much lands? Not either I can clearly receive it because it's okay or I have to clearly reject it because it's clearly sinful. But right in the middle, and what do I do with this? Because it's this weird mix maybe of both. Well, then I think this third uh, filter we can run it through is we can redeem it. We can redeem it. I think that's what it means to be salt and light in the world. You can re- receive it, uh, you can reject it, or you can redeem it. There's some things in our culture that in and of themselves are not bad or wicked, but they're used in a sinful manner sometimes in our culture, so they need to be redeemed from that and be used instead to glorify the Lord. Right? Um, uh, one example of this it, uh, would be sexual pleasure. God made our bodies for other purposes for sexual pleasure, but in our, in our culture, it's whatever feels good to you, do that. But in reality, God says, no, that's limited to one specific uh, relationship in marriage one man, one woman, and that's where it belongs. And we need to redeem that. Amen? And another good one maybe is social media. Is Facebook evil? Sometimes, <laughs> right? It depends whose page I'm on. But how are you using that? Are, are, are you redeeming it, using it for God's glory, speaking with salt and light into people's lives? Or are you complaining to everyone? I have to confess, I, I, I'm guilty of that. You know, I get off the phone with CenturyLink and they didn't come fix my internet, so I get on Twitter and ah, I hate CenturyLink. Well, That doesn't give Jesus much glory, does it? That's to my shame. We need to redeem it. Amen? So so use use those filters as you think about being a sent one. Am I going to receive this? Can I I receive this? Do I need to reject this? Or uh, more likely, how do I engage with this to redeem it? Amen? Hopefully that's helpful. But uh, James point is much deeper than just how we engage culture. He calls us an adulteress. He calls his people in his churches here, an adulterous people. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? When you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And, and really what he's talking about here is not being a friend of sinners like his brother was, but being a friend of those things that I need to reject. And, and just living in this world and saying, no, I can receive that. When really, it's, it's so clear, God's word says, no, you need to reject that. Or you're engaging with something and, and God's word you need to redeem that. You can't take it just as it is. That's being a friend of the world. It's letting the world control my values and my passions and the truth. James says, don't be a friend of the world in that way. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8, he says, For the mind that's set on the flesh, or on the world, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. James here, he's making, in chapter 4, starting in verse 4 through 6, a link to Old Testament prophecy. Do you know... That In the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, is often referred to as God's wife. And that might sound strange at first, but you got to understand it's, it's metaphorical, right? It's in terms of that's the love for which God has. That's the love God has for his people. He loves them with, with passion, with tenderness, with, with, with a deep regard for who they are. He, he longs to know them and to have as close a relationship as possible. And the Bible makes clear that the closest relationship possible, humanly speaking, should be between a husband and a wife. And God is saying, that's how I view my people. That's the relationship I want with you. Tender, compassionate, loving, knowing you. But the problem is, uh, not only does it use this illustration of God's people of Israel, and I think we can move forward here and say for us, as his people, as his wife, as his bride... um, but he also says she's an adulterer. She's cheated on me. See, she's turned her back on me. And, and literally, throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, it says, She's gone whoring after other gods. Instead of loving me as her husband God says, she's loved other things, other gods, other idols. And and what is an idol? When idol is anything we put in the place of Jesus, right? That we worship and love more than Him. So I talked earlier. Some of those pleasures or passions of yours are they in? Are they are they bad in and of themselves? No, but when they become primary, bad news. They're an idol, and you are. Uh, the Bible says you're literally whoring after that thing, and you've turned your back on the Lord. That's strong language, isn't it? Well, it's used throughout, and I think maybe one of uh, the most um, uh, vivid examples of this is in the book of Ezekiel. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. And you need to know, this is just fair warning, uh, do my best here to tread lightly, but it's going to be hard because Ezekiel chapter 16 uh, gives, uses some pretty vivid language uh, in, God's rela- in God's love for us and in the horrid nature of our sin. And it, it really uh, illuminates James' comment here, you adulterous people, which by the way, if you could see that in, in the Greek text, um, you would see that he uses the feminine for adulteress. So literally he says, you adulteresses which is what God's word uses for his people. Uh, look with me in Ezekiel chapter 16. If, if you have the ESV, you'll notice there's a pericope, a heading there that, that an editor has placed in that says the Lord's faithless bride. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, uh, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Make known to her her sin, in other words, and say this. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Maybe you'd hear this to you and I would hear this to me. Uh, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. This sounds like a list of insults, doesn't it? Like, who are these people? I don't, I don't know. I just. Your mother's a Canaanite. Your father's a Hittite. Take that. Well, if you lived in this day, you'd find out that uh, what he's saying is, The way you were born, uh, you were not mine.
1: You were alienated
0: from me. You were a foreign to me. Uh, You were a foreign people. You had rebelled against me. You were born, we're going to see here, in sin. And you were hopeless. Look, and as for your birth, on the day that you were born, uh, your cord was not cut, your umbilical cord. If you've seen a child born, maybe an image even comes to your mind here. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. Nor were you rubbed with salt. That was something done in those days believed to be helpful to an infant when they were born. Nor were you wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you. To do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. No, no one loved you enough to do any of these things for you. Imagine that. A baby that's born... No one loves it enough to do anything, but it's simply left as is. What's going to happen to that child? It's going to die. It's going to die. No, I pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you, verse 5. But you were cast out on the open field. What an awful picture. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. God's saying this to his bride Israel, to his bride the church, to us. In other words, there there's was, there was nothing about you that drew anyone to you. You, you. you were hopeless. As we sang, you were an orphan lost at the fall. But look, and when I passed by you, the Lord says, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, I said, God says, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. What God is saying here is, I found you. You were alone. You were to be pitied. There was no hope for you. And I'm the one who came along. Nothing to do with you. I'm the one who came along. And I said to you, live, live. And not only live, but then I shepherded you and I helped you to grow. And and I made you healthy and I cleaned you off. And, and you grew up in me. It's a, it's a picture of of, uh, of spiritual growth and of the gospel of what God does for us, isn't it? And how he rescues us and he makes us grow. And you get to the end of verse 7, and now his bride has reached adolescence. And when I passed by you again, verse 8, you uh, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. See, if you read the book of Ruth, you'll find out Boaz does this with Ruth. And it's, uh, it's this idea of a, of a proposal of saying, I love you. I, I want to, to make you my bride, uh, to make you mine forever, to care for you. It, it's, it's proposal language in the Old Testament. And God is saying, I'm, I'm the one who, who made you beautiful for marriage. And now I'm the one uh, who's, who's going to redeem you through marriage uh, I made my vow to you, he says, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. See, if you're one of God's people, if you've trusted him and put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, this has happened for you. you. You are his. He's made you his. He's made you new. He's cleaned you. He's adorned you. And you are his forever. He's made a covenant with you that cannot be broken. And then, look what it says, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Well, uh, this time, it's not the blood of birth, but uh, the blood of adolescence and of womanhood. And uh, God is cleansing us, is what he's saying. He's making us clean. That causes your stomach to turn a little bit. Well, so should your sin. God cleanses us from that. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth. And I shod you with fine leather. Um, I wrapped you in fine linen. I covered you with silk. It's like we went on a shopping spree and I got you everything and made you beautiful. He's done this internally. He's done this externally. I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown, God says to you and to me, went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Do you see the picture so far? God has has rescued Israel and he has rescued us through Jesus Christ from a state of total hopelessness. And he's cleaned us up and he's adorned us and he's caused us to grow. And he's made a covenant with us, just like a covenant of marriage, to where we are his, he is ours, and there's no breaking it. And throughout this whole process, he continues to lavish us with blessings because of his love for us. And he adorns us and he makes us beautiful. He's preparing us, you see it in the, in the New Testament, right? In Revelation, to be a beautiful bride ready for that day when Jesus returns. It's all God doing all of this. Isn't that fantastic? Ladies, if you're, if you're not married and you're thinking of someone to marry, this is the guy you want, right? Not the guy in his mom's basement playing video games, but the guy who has a job, who can lavish you with good gifts and make you beautiful. Isn't that who you want? God says, that's me. That's me. That's all I've done for you. And would, wouldn't your heart just respond to that type of a person, to that type of relationship, that type of a man with just great joy? And it's no problem to submit to him because he loves me and he... He has my best interests in mind all the time. But you get to chapter 16, verse 15. And there's a very key word that starts verse 15 of Ezekiel 16. But, God's like, I did all this for you, but you trusted in your beauty. And you played the whore because of your renown. And you lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. His. You took some of your garments and you made for yourself colorful shrines. Made for yourself colorful shrines. And on them you played the whore. The like has never been nor shall ever be, God says. You also looked to your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. And with them you played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and you set my oil and my incense before them, also, my bread I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set them, uh, bef- you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Was it so small? What were your horns? Was it so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all of your abominations. And your whorings, did you not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood? God's like, I did all this for you and you turned from me. And the language he uses is piercing, isn't it? And it's vivid and it's, we probably couldn't read this passage if we didn't have a kid's ministry. He says, that's your sin. You adulterous people. And he goes on, and he goes on, and all through chapter 16. And James is using this imagery in chapter 4 of James when he says, um, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, see God, Ezekiel goes on, and God speaks through Ezekiel to say, uh, you played the whore with this people, and with this people, and with this people. And you continued to turn from me, you continued to, and uh, that's what James is saying, right? He's saying uh, you've become a friend of the world. God's saying you've become a friend of of, of other gods. You, you've worshipped other gods, and the imagery he uses is of a wife cheating repeatedly on her husband, of a spouse. Uh, that's, that's a harsh. It's hurtful. God knows what that hurt feels like. That's how he feels when we sin. The book of Hosea is another example of this imagery. Where in Hosea, God tells the prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute and to live with her. And to make make her his as a visual image for all of God's people to see the way that uh, they treat God and that God treats them. Hosea, representing Jesus, representing God, continues to go back to her with more and more grace, with more and more love, over and over, and always takes her back no matter how many times she cheats on him. And always continues to care for her, never abandons her, yet she continually is turning on him. Though he's always faithful, she's unfaithful. Her name is Gomer in the book of Hosea. And she's always turning from him and he's always stepping closer toward her. And that's the image of God towards us. We're always turning on him. We're an adulterous people, James says. We've become friends of the world and enemies of God. He says, do you suppose then that the scripture says, to no purpose, verse 5 of chapter 4, that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? There's been um, all kinds of ink spilled on this verse for a few reasons. One, what's the spirit he's talking about? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it our, our, and I don't think it is, I think it's actually our being, and I'll explain this in a moment, but our very being, the spirit he's put in us. Then the other one is what verse is James quoting? He says the scripture clearly says, right? Um he yearns over oh, yearns jealousy over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. Well, if you search all the Old Testament and even some of the extra canonical books like in the apocrypha, you'll, you'll never find this verse anywhere because it's not in the Old Testament. James is summing up uh, this this whole idea that's throughout the Old Testament of 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 especially in Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, of, of God having a relationship with his people such that he's the faithful husband and she's uh, the adulterous bride. And he, he yearns after his bride. It does it doesn't say to, to no purpose that scripture says all these things like we just read in Ezekiel 16, that he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us, that he yearns jealously for you. Yet you you continue to turn from him. Well, why does it say this over and over? So that you won't, so that you'll stay with him. Does it say that for no point, James is asking? Clearly, God loves you. Why do you continue to turn? But like Hosea with Gomer, look at verse six, but he gives more grace. So even if you've turned, even if you've rebelled, God gives more grace for you to return. He gives more grace. Now, Paul tells us in Romans 6, we shouldn't presume on that grace, right? But as we sin, God gives more grace. His grace to you is inexhaustible until the day that Jesus returns and then it's inaccessible. Would you turn to him? And receive his grace, you adulterous people. He gives more grace, so turn to him. That's why it says God opposes the proud, the proud who continually turn from him, continually rebel, continue to play the prostitute, and he gives grace to the humble, to those who submit to God. James is saying, Quit cheating on God and the problems within you. But here's the cure. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. Well, what does it mean to be humble? See, at the end of chapter six and even into verses seven through, or verse six, into verses seven through ten, uh, James is quoting, I think, proverbs 3:34 where God says, uh, "Toward the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. Well, what does it mean to be humble? You know, the problem with humility is that once I think I'm humble, I'm not anymore. That's tough, isn't it? How do I become humble? Well, here's a, here's a helpful way to understand humility. Humility, uh, simply speaking, is to know your place. To know your place. To be humble means to know your place. Uh, Specifically, you might think of it in this way. It's kind of drawn out for you. Some graphics on your insert, and it'll be on the screen. But um, the Bible's clear that our place is uh, one where we are, as his people, and as as his creation, bearing his image, that we are humbly honored. We're we're humbly honored. We're, We're below God, but we're honored. We're above lower creation. Of all of creation, humanity is God's crown jewel because we bear his image. That's why he longs jealously for us and not for the horses. Not that he doesn't care about his creation, but he longs jealously for people, for his people. Because we bear his image, we are humbly honored. Know your place. And when I know my place, I know I need to repent and I need to turn back to him. But the problem is the opposite of humility is pride. And pride is when I don't know my place, but instead I, I, I take my place. And I put myself in God's place. And, and all of lower creation and even God Himself is submissive to me and my world and what I want. That's pride. Humility is knowing your place, pride is just trying to take your place. Be humble. See, that's what James says then as he closes out uh, this passage through verse 10. And he's going to talk more and more about humility throughout the rest of chapter 4. You'll hear it again next Sunday. You'll hear it in a couple Sundays when Pastor Kirk is preaching. You're going to hear this over and over, this idea of knowing your place. Look what he says. In other words, here's the cure uh, for all of your rebellion. Here's the cure uh, for you to be right with the Lord. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. Therefore, in light of all of that, in light of the fact that you're an adulterous people, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself to him. Take, know your place. Submit yourself to him. And here in verse 7 through 10, James gives uh, 10 commands. Rapid fire. And his, his whole motivation is looking back at verses 4 through 6 saying, Listen, you adulterous people, but he gives more grace. So submit yourselves to him. Do these things and claim his grace. Be made right. Submit yourself, therefore, to the Lord. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. If you keep uh, turning your back on God, the reality is uh, you're, you're not so much even turning your back on God as you are chasing after another lover. You're chasing after the enemy. No, no, no! Resist him and his advances, and turn your eyes on the Lord. Draw near, verse eight, to God, and He will draw near to you. You, you want a closer relationship with the Lord? Well, get your nose in this book and draw near to Him, uh, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Be made clean. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James, again, is referencing back some things that he had talked about before. Be wretched. Mourn and weep. Listen, does that imagery pierce your heart and pierce your gut? That God loves you with an incredible passion, but in my sin, it's as if... Some of you have experienced that even in your own relationships. And I don't say this to bring up hurt. Or to bring accusation, but to say, um, God feels that way about our sin. But he shows more grace if you turn to him. So yeah, be wretched, be mournful, weep over your sin, because it's an awful, awful thing. But turn to him. Turn to him. In fact, uh, humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. See, in the Old Testament, uh, Prophet Jeremiah says that uh, the sorrow may come for the night, joy comes in the morning. And he turns our weeping into dancing because that's how good our God is. So James is telling us to weep and to mourn. He's telling us to repent. But knowing that in doing that and in humbling ourselves, God will exalt us. God will give joy. Amen. Let me pray. We're going to sing uh, in light of these truths. And um, uh, yeah, let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And Lord, some of the things today, there it's, it's, it really is just vivid and harsh imagery. It can be hard to stomach. It can be hard to understand, but it's true. And our wickedness before you is great. Yet even knowing who we are, knowing uh, every thought of our mind, every desire of our heart, uh, you still love us because of Jesus. You still draw near to us. Lord, uh, help us to know our place, to repent of our sin and to draw near to you. I pray for those today, Lord Jesus, who've never, maybe they've heard the gospel over and over and over and they know that they know the. the the concrete truth of, of Jesus, you dying for them on the cross and they've heard all these things, but maybe somehow, Holy Spirit, you would use the imagery of, of even the filth and repulsiveness that we saw in the Old Testament today to draw their hearts toward you, to realize how wretched they are in their sin, but how incredibly gracious and good you are in spite of our sin. To take our sin, Jesus, to die on the cross, to make us new, to make us clean, make us beautiful. Lord, if they would uh, would simply turn uh, from their sin to you, confess with their mouth, believe in their hearts, Jesus, that you died for them on the cross and that you were risen from the dead to pay their penalty, they will be saved. They'll be made new. If that's you today, do that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and we pray all this through him. Amen.